You are listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Has your career been like a crime novel? Are you working from whodunit to whodunit? Are there really crime masterminds, syndicates, and secret organizations intent on doing harm? Well, Mark Cameron is a former law enforcement officer and detective with the Weatherford Police Department before accepting a position with the United States Marshals Service and serving as a deputy, fugitive task force commander, supervisory deputy, senior inspector, and chief. He is the award-winning author of the Arliss Cutter and Jericho Quinn series, as well as the Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan Sr. books. Starting with Power and Empire in 2017, his assignments have taken him from rural Alaska to Manhattan, from Canada to Mexico, and points in between. His latest novel is Bone Rattle, and I can't wait to read it. Welcome to Policing Matters, Mark Cameron. Hey, thank you, Jim. Glad to be here. Yeah, well, it's great to have you. Um, I've seen some of your work, and we've had mystery writers on the podcast before. We've had the uh, DEA Narcos uh, agent Steve Murphy and Javier Pena. They were talking about their nonfiction uh, exploits in their book, Manhunters. And now uh, an added twist of a former local police officer, yourself, and a federal marshal writing mystery novels. How did you make the transition from law enforcement to crime writing? Well, you know, as you well know, coppers are storytellers. And we sit around, you know, when we should be writing or finishing up our reports and going home to our families, we sit around kind of telling war stories. And I grew up in a, a storytelling family. My mom's from Louisiana. My dad's from West Texas. And we I spent a lot of my growing up years just sitting on the porch while my, you know, helping my great aunts and grandma shell purple hole peas and cut okra and whatever, and listening to their stories. And most of those stories, even those elderly women were about death and crime and, you know, things like that. Cause you know, who was doing such and such over in what and so parish or County. And um, so I, I really, I, I think I, I kind of figured out what stories were early on, you know, beginning, middles and ends and rising action and all that, just sort of by listening and um, then listening to stories. My, my youngest son um, is a police officer and he told me not long ago, he said, you know, dad, one of the reasons that I got into police work is because of all the stories you used to tell around the dinner table and, and, um, and you had such good friends. So I think it just sort of comes natural as a police officer. Maybe I, I really wanted to write. I wanted to be published in my, I tell the story all the time that my wife, um, I, she thought I was going to be a drama professor. We, um, we met in college and she knew I wanted to write books. She knew I liked mysteries and that sort of thing. And I like to shoot guns, but she thought I was going to be a drama professor and a novelist. And then a couple of about a month before we got married, I, I remember sitting on the back porch of my parents' house with the, you know, the kitchen phone and the cord going out the back and sitting on the back porch. And she was in Canada. I was in Texas. And I kind of gave her this spill my guts, heartfelt confession that I really wanted to be a cop. And she uh, married me anyway, even though I wasn't going to be a drama teacher. And uh, 
that first year we were married, I, I got a job with the Weatherford Police Department making like six sixty-seven an hour. And somehow she scraped the money together to buy me a Smith Krona typewriter and a American body armor bulletproof vest, the kind of bullet resistant vest, the kind with the armadillo on the, the <laughs> picture. So I got a ballistic vest and a typewriter. And she that really sort of typifies her support for me in those two dreams. So it just kind of, you know, people, I think Clive Cussler famously said he was a, an, it took him 10 years to be an overnight success. And I wrote for 20 years um, it would, would just get it, with my wife putting up with me, kind of holding up typing or writing longhand or whatever for hours a night. And it took about 20 years before I got anything published. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that's a good visual. Uh, the old uh, crossed pen and sword, you know, the sword, the pen is mightier than the sword. Your, your coat of arms, I guess, will be a bulletproof <laughs> vest crossed with a typewriter. <laughs> that's, I love it. I like, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Murphy and, and Pena and Narcos. My, my son found an old picture of me in Little Rock, Arkansas, back in, I can't, like 90, 90 or 91, I guess 91, something like that. And I was, uh, no, Fort Smith, Arkansas. And it was one of those pictures you don't post out on the media because it's, we've got a guy we just arrested and it's my partner and me. And I had the, the Steve Murphy mustache and glasses and, and my, uh, my son found the picture and he took a picture of it and sent it to me. And he said, dad, I didn't know you were in that movie Narcos when you were in that show Narcos when you were little, uh, when you were young, it was a, we had that look for sure. And, and, and I carry a revolver with that late eighties look for sure. Well, you're, you're from Alaska and you're there now, and that makes for a setting that's uh, far from what us in the lower 48 are used to. I've been to Anchorage, Juneau, Denali and, and the islands and it's spectacular, but often remote. And I hear, uh, just as many people own the amphibious airplanes as they do cars up there. So how much of your own experiences and, and your, your settings, your natural settings go into your novels? Oh, a ton. Uh, uh, we lived, I wanted to get to Alaska my entire life. And so I grew up in Texas, um, read a bunch of books about the North when I was young, uh, read a book called two against the North about two boys that get marooned in a canoe accident when they're, young teenagers. And I was about 11, I think, and just really kind of made my mind up that I was going to end up here someday. And so, in fact, I was applying with the North Slope Police Department because that's the only way you could get to Alaska as a police officer. Anchorage PD, Alaska State Troopers at that time in the early, in the mid eighties, wouldn't hire you unless you were already an Alaska resident. And so but the North Slope PD would, and that's it's the North Slope PD is an interesting police department because it's a, it's a borough or a municipality, but it makes up the top third of Alaska. So that mountain range that goes across the top all the way to um, Point Barrow and out to Point Lay and or Point Hope and all of that, and then over to the Canadian border, and so it's a huge swath of of land. But much like the the Alaska State Troopers, it's, it's got a post headquarters and then little posts. So you might be working for two weeks in a small village and, you know, be the only law enforcement out there. So that kind of appealed to me on my adventurous side. But then the marshals hired me. And um, I, in fact, I was, I was 
already slated for a polygraph and um, I think the physical and the polygraph, they were doing it all in Seattle at the same time. So I'd been through the initial stuff with uh, North Slope and then the marshals hired me and I'd been waiting on them for like two years, two and a half years. So we took that job and then eventually came to Alaska through transfers and whatnot and worked my way up here. So we've been here 22 years and the marshal service job is so varied that I've been able to, to have assignments like going out and seizing 30,000 pounds of frozen cod in Chignik <laughs> Bay or, or looking for fugitives in um, the, the first Arliss Cutter book happens down on Prince of Wales Island. And I was part of a tactical tracking unit here, an on the ground man tracking unit. And uh, another a guy chopped another guy's head off with a splitting mall and then fled into the woods. And, you know, kind of a green, if you bend a green stick, you just barely have to touch it and it breaks. Well, that's kind of what happened, I guess. And um, so he ran into the woods and this has been 20 years ago. And uh, they called us down there and we spent about three days tracking him through the woods. And uh, unfortunately he had on extra tufts, which everybody wears up here. So the, the tracks were all over the place. So we were really sort of looking, using sort of link analysis and things like that to, to track him. Eventually found him. And, uh, but, I, but spending all that time in those old growth forests and I mean, you've, you've been up here and you know that it's so unique and so different and so far away that uh, I knew 20 years ago that that was going to go in a book someday. And eventually, not the, not the murder not even the tracking part, but the setting, the people, the cult, the very strong uh, Alaska native culture uh, in that part of the state is Clinkett and Haida, the totem pole uh, building um, Alaska natives. And um, so it's so vast and so different that I can write a ton of stories and write about, you know, Yupik people in Western Alaska or in bone rattle it's down in Juneau, Alaska it has to do with politics because our state um, capital, you can't get to it by car. You've got, they, they famously joke that there's only, there's three ways to get to Juneau, uh, plane, boat, or birth canal. And <laughs> um, so it lends to some really good settings and kind of quirky people. Yeah, really. I mean, I think it's romantic up there. I love those sort of cold weather novels and, and of course, the real history, um, you know, the Shackleton um, mm -hmm. expedition way up north. Um, I remember being in Juneau on the 4th of July and really didn't see the fireworks because at midnight, it still looked like noon in uh, San Francisco time. So yeah, yeah. great experiences up there. And so when you write your novels, um, you know, it sounds like you've got just this great experience and, and, and you can really talk about the people in the, in the country up there, but do you get any feedback from readers? Are they, at, how much, how much of the specifics do they want to know? Do they, they want to know how everything works? Do they want to know, um, or do they call you on what they perceive as a mistake? If you talk about a firearm or an explosive or something like that. Oh yeah. And you know, it probably depends on the, the book a little bit, but um, I always joke that, that the, that's really not much of a joke, but Clancy readers, they expect, because he was such a master of detail and technical detail. I mean, he is the father of the techno thriller that I, I feel like Clancy readers are reading all the Jack Ryan books with a TI 
graphing calculator beside their book and checking out everything <laughs> that I write. And I got a, I got an email from a, a reader several years ago from on an early Jericho Quinn book. And those are uh, kind of over the top thrillers. They're about an OSI agent with the air force that um, sort of like graphic novels in print. They're all, all the, I don't break the laws of physics. He's not a superhero. So it's possible but not quite probable, you know, kind of Jason Bourne, James Bond, fun, fun books to, to write. And I hope read, but I, I got an email from a nuclear physicist in Idaho and he pointed out that I had the half-life of some kind of plutonium off by 35 million years and 35,000 years. And I wrote him back and just said, dude, I am just so happy that a nuclear physicist is reading my books. So <laughs> That's great. yeah, some people, I, I don't think I've gotten too much wrong about firearms. I, I think I, um, I might've gotten a crew served weapon. I might've mislabeled one, like mixed the word, the numbers around, but I, the beauty about being in law enforcement so long and having friends in the military and going out and shooting, you know, you know, you well know that they spend a lot of time, familiarizing us with other types of weapons, even those we don't shoot. And so mm. even though I never carried an AK-47, I've spent time in the range shooting one so that I knew how to, to uh, make it safe on the street. And same with a, a multitude of other types of weapons. And, and when we first started, for instance, we, um, in the Marshal Service, we shot Uzis. We qualified with an Uzi pistol um, because the State Department was using Uzis and we assisted them in UN General Assembly. So when the rest of the world was moving on to MP5s, the marshals were shooting these open bolt Uzis and, you know, which are, and, and I see that a lot. People will um, periodically, they'll write, I'll see a read or writer say something about, uh, you know, he racked the bolt on his Uzi and an Uzi shoots from an open bolt. It's open already. You pull the trigger, it closes, shoots and opens again. And so, um, I don't pick other people's writing apart. Hardly anybody knows that, but I try to, I try to put in those little details so that rather than getting bad emails, I'll have somebody email me and say, Oh, wow, you've held a newsie before, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Um, we had a shooting, um, gangster shot at some of our cops and we were investigating. And when we grabbed the Uzi, we took it to the range and filmed, for court that it was fully automatic. And uh, just as you say, and as, as wildly and as um, you know, frequently as the, the rounds come out, um, gosh, it's so surprising that to think that anybody used those, you know, with yeah, the accuracy problems. They're, well, you have to know how to shoot them. They're an amazing weapon. I want uh, the, <laughs> the guy uh, next to me on the range when we were shooting, they, when you're, what they do, they do a drill when we're practicing with them where the, they put the target at 75 meters and then it, or I guess 50 meters, 50 meters and it starts running back at you and you're supposed to dump two 30 round mags into it as it's approaching. And of course the Uzi, when you, if you just hold the, hold the trigger down, it, you get rid of 30 rounds really fast. Right. So you're trying to get on target. And um, this was a, I guess it was just 25 meters because we were inside. So 25 meter range, it's coming at us fast and there's a light bar above us and uh, I'm shooting at my target and all of a sudden the light bar just crashes down 
in front of us and shatters all over everything. And of course we ground our weapons and I thought, Holy crud. I've just, I'm just shot the light bar down. Luckily it was the guy next to me and not me, <laughs> but you could see the, the, those, they can get away from you. You could see sure. the track of bullets going from, you know, track of the holes in his paper all the way up through the little clippy thing that keeps the target on. And they just kept going. So it'll get away bar. from you fast. It'll get away from you really fast. He killed the light bar. Yep. 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 All right. So you mentioned the Tom Clancy novels. One of my favorite novelists and I love his series. I want to talk about that in a second, but first I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor. PoliceOne.com is the number one resource for your up-to-the-minute law enforcement news, training, and incident analysis. Our mission is to provide you with the information you need to better protect your communities and your safety. Becoming a Police One member is quick, easy, and free. Once registered, you will receive access to secure law enforcement-only training and video tips, articles and sections, and a subscription to our award-winning law enforcement newsletters. Go to policeone.com forward slash registration to sign up today. That's policeone, the number one, dot com forward slash registration. And we are back with Mark Cameron, retired police officer, U.S. Marshal, and novelist. Well, you've carried on the mantle of one of my favorite writers, Tom Clancy. Uh, there must be a ton of pressure living up to the Clancy legacy. I read somewhere that uh, in Clancy's novels, uh, he was so descriptive. And you mentioned this a little bit. You, you referred to the technology, the submarines. I think it was Red October uh, that he was called by a federal agency. I don't know if it was the FBI or, or who, but they interviewed Clancy to ask him where he got his classified information on the submarines. And he essentially said, hey, it was open source material and stuff I didn't know. I just sort of filled in the gaps. <laughs> so I'm wondering, uh, are you facing such dilemmas? Well, somewhat, but I, I think the dilemmas I face are knowing things not necessarily military things because I'm, I was not in the military, but if I write about certain things from having a, a top secret clearance, of course it was eight years ago. And fortunately things have changed, but if I write about anything, even if it's open source, if I learned about it from a, you know, say a JT, a joint terrorism task force meeting or something like that, then I could get in trouble. And as a, as, as you know, as a police officer, former police officer, we, want to take care of our own that are still out there because you know the, my son's always joking with me we have the and the SWAT teams have like a red team and a blue team and we're part of the gray team now the, <laughs> but we still care right and we right. still don't want to get them in a bind so often I'll leave out little you know I'm not going to tell somebody even though they could find out how to make a some kind of explosive out of household chemicals online I'm not going to give them that recipe. Sure. I'll let the reader know that I know how, you know, by saying a little bit so that they see it, but then I'll leave out the, you know, and then, and then he got another chemical from the pantry. And the same thing with, um, you know, nuclear weapon or particularly means and methods, you know, we, mm -hmm. the way that intelligence works, um, I know enough about, I know enough about, the intelligence community, even though I was in a law enforcement community and you're, I think you're, you're the, the police one 
all the topics, they do a really good job of pointing out to young would-be people going into law enforcement that CIA is not a law enforcement job. It's mm-hmm. a completely different job because oftentimes people say, I've always wanted to be in law enforcement. I want to be FBI, CIA, or U.S. <laughs> Marshals. And I point out that's not, you know, I, I, that, that does not mean what, you know, what you think it means kind of a thing. And, <laughs> right. um, so, but I know enough about it from working with the federal government that I'm even careful, even though I haven't been exposed to it, I know where to look for the, so much top secret stuff is just open source anyway. Sure. I think I even make a statement in one of my early books. I have the, the bad guy say something like, you know, this, this, the information in Time Magazine would have gotten the Rosenberg shot, you know, or <laughs> gassed or whatever. We just put so much out there sure. that you just sort of have to know, like Clancy did, you have to intuit. You have to say, okay, well, I'm reading this in, you know, space and aerospace news and this thing in Navy Times and putting the two and two together. And um, you can come up with some pretty, I mean, that's what intelligence officers do. They intuit from looking at open source. So Mm -hmm. I do that a lot. And oftentimes it will come out um, by the, I mean, the the perfect world, about the time the book comes out, the news like a good thing would be a good example would be uh, two books ago or two Clancy books ago. I think my second Clancy book, Oath of Office, dealt with deep fake videos. And at that time, mm. you didn't see it. That was three years ago, three and a half, four years ago. And you didn't see as they weren't as good as they are now. But part of it was a, a getting Jack Ryan, basically putting Jack Ryan saying some incriminating things on a deep fake video to make the American people not trust him. And, uh, and, and, and I think if I'm thinking back of the right book, there was a epidemic going around the, the, uh, country at the time. And, uh, he wanted people to get vaccinated. And now this deep fake video was making him seem untrustworthy, but that was, I forgot about that till I'm just talking to you about it. So I dealt with trust issues of the government and deep fake videos and how the news can be manipulated to make somebody say look like they're saying things that they're not and uh and then six months after the book came out there was all kinds of news about deep fakes and i think i saw it in a little five line blurb in the economist or maybe a wired magazine or something like that yeah well there clearly there's versions of that happening mm-hmm. today when we see news media manipulating stories and mm-hmm. you know editing out guns and things like that so mm-hmm. To, to further that um, that narrative. Well, um, I love the the Clancy characters. You've continued with them. Uh, right now, Amazon just came out with their, um, their Without Remorse, their version. Uh, I saw it, uh, their version of Without Remorse using one of my favorite characters. He keeps popping up. I know he's in your books, the, the John Clark um persona and they're aging and how are you how are you figuring out uh, do you do um storyboards do you follow a character from 20s to 30s to, is there a longitudinal timeline how's that work well you know in the past books you know we're in the 20 something books now of the jack ryan and jack ryan's president i do get a lot of emails like how long is he going to be president well that's not up to me that's up to the the, the estate and the publisher so I've sort of stopped the timeline. All the adventures are happening to Jack Ryan as the president. And, and you know, that's a tough thing for an author to write because Jack Ryan's such a 
compelling character. It's difficult to have him have many adventures sitting behind the resolute desk in the white house, you know, cause we, we as writers of the franchise kept him where Clancy left him. And that was after, um, executive orders. Or I, I can't remember which one where he, the decapitation strike and he becomes the, the president because of where he's at and the, the newly minted vice president, like, like literally minutes before he's, he's, uh, confirmed by Congress and then the the guy for the, the Japanese guy in the plane flies into the building and kills everybody in the joint session and he's the president. So I'm dealing with that. Clark is older. Ding is Ding Chavez is about the age that we remember Clark at in some of all fears. And of course Chavez is Clark's son-in-law. And so this whole incredible world that Tom, this universe that Tom Clancy dreamed up and put together. And then Mark Graney added to with Adar Sherman and Midas Bartowski and this, the campus that, that this sort of this off the books quasi government organization um, that does the adventurous part of stuff while Jack Ryan senior does the um, political geopolitical moving chess pieces around kind of thing. So I, I've sort of frozen time there <laughs> and let all the adventures happen in what I see the last year of his presidency. So it's fun. It's a lot of fun, but you got to keep with so many writers, there have been some conflicting details. And so no matter what I pick, some of them are going to be wrong because I agree with this book or I agree with that book. Right. And you mentioned cops are great storytellers. I agree. That's one thing I miss most from hanging out at the station, the coffee pot. Uh, I know uh, many have stories to tell and they may be thinking about writing. How difficult is the jump? What What's your advice? Uh, sit down and start writing. Um, we had one of our novelists, uh, Ellen Kirschman, talk about uh, the difference between plotters and pantsers being pantsers being the fly by the seat of your pants and write it as you think it. I'm, I'm definitely a plotter. I have a huge whiteboard in my office. I, I fill up, um, probably for a Clancy, I'll fill up 15 to 20 yellow notepads, just free writing. I write a lot longhand to begin with mm. and flesh that things out. I know that I, for a Clancy book, for instance, I've got to have five store, five subplots going along that mm. all, merge towards one. So I, you know, as far as the process, everybody does it differently. And I've got friends that swear that they're pantsers and write uh, from the seat of their pants. I, I don't understand that. I think what they are is just way smarter than me and they're plotting in their head and they just remember it because I, I can't imagine writing a book. Well, even, even the, the Jericho Quinn's or the Arliss Cutter books, which are generally about three plots, two major ones, and then a C plot. I still have to plot those out because I have to know where to drop clues. I have to know the beginning from the end. And so I, uh, so the process, everybody does it differently, but as far as breaking in, the very first thing you have to do is just write a good story mm. and hone your craft and simply being from an adventurous background, whether it's, you know, and, and I always, say that being a police officer and a deputy marshal, if you keep your ears open and listen and watch and engage other officers, other agents, prisoners, even when you're, we, you know, we, 
one of the things that's often cited as being super boring in the marshal services are long prisoner trips. And now a lot of it's done by air, especially in Alaska, it's done by air. But um, I spent hours and hours and hours in Texas. I was in Sherman, so right upon the Oklahoma border. And we would drive prisoners up to El Reno, Oklahoma. And oftentimes it was just onesies and twosies. So we had them in the back of a, a you know, a Chevy Caprice those old Chevy Caprices look like Shamu, the roundy right. ones. Big white and, whale, uh, we called them. Age, yeah. yeah, exactly. So my one of my first government vehicles was a, a blue Shamu and cage in the back. And we'd put a couple of outlaws and head them up to El Reno where the airlift would pick them up. And that was a, that was a four hour, three and a half, four hour trip. I could have just listened to the radio, but if the people wanted to talk, they, we would talk and I would listen to their stories and um, not to base anything off any one person, but to base, I remember one time and I, your listeners that are police officers are going to identify with this right away. We were taking a guy we'd arrested. My partner and I had arrested a guy in um, Plano, North of Dallas. Sure. Our, our, our area went almost to Dallas. We had Plano all the way to Oklahoma and then around to almost Texarkana. So we'd gone down into the city and we'd arrested this guy on a uh, parole violation. And back then, parole had been abolished federally, but there were still some parole ease out there. And they were great for a deputy because there was no judge involved. You went and arrested the person and they went right back to prison. <laughs> there was no initial appearance, no nothing. That piece of paper said they're already cooked and cleaned. You just <laughs> deliver them to prison. So we arrested this guy for parole violation like five o'clock in the morning. We, we like to go in and these were not no knock warrants. We'd like to go in when they were sleepy, knocked on the door. He came to the door. He'd been expecting it. It was a white collar crime. He, um, he, I think he got a DUI or something like that. And that popped it, you know, it violated his parole. So he was kind of expecting it. It was one of two people in my entire career that I let hug his, little baby goodbye because i could see he was not a danger most of the time i would never let a somebody in my custody hold a child let him hold his hug his baby goodbye we put him in had to put him in a three piece suit you know leg irons um belly chain handcuffs put him in the the three point restraints started to to seagullville prison and he was kind of a big guy but i talked to him for it took about an hour to get there and I chatted with him. He was very uh, amiable guy, but the closer we got to prison, the more I could see a, almost a physical change. And he sort of, and Seagoville is what they sometimes call a, or was what they call a, a country club prison. It was where white collar beds went and that sort of thing, but it was still a prison. And the closer we got, he started to sort of puff up in back and I could see him, sort of hyperventilating and and I thought boy he's having some sort of heart episode or something so mm. I checked on him and he he said no 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 I'm just putting on my prison face if I'm wow. the nice guy you've been talking to there's no way I'm going to survive so those little vignettes I got mm. a million of them and I just yeah. write them down in books as as every officer does right. and I just I think anybody that wants to write just needs to number one take their nose out of their cell phone and observe <laughs> and and observe that human condition. And then, you know, you'd be like the mollusk, be like the oyster 
it's just straining all that cool information that you get as a, I, I know from your experience, you could probably write 15 Clancy sized novels and never repeat yourself with fictionalized imaginings of what could have happened in things that you experienced. Yeah, no, I think, I think about things that happened and it would be easy to do. I just got to, you know, put those two index fingers down on exactly. some keyboards. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> so let's wrap it up. And um, before we go, I want to hear a little bit of a teaser to Bone Rattle, your, your brand new novel. What's, what's going on with that? Well, the character Arliss Cutter is a, is a if, if you're familiar with the Marty Robbins song, um, Big Iron on His Hip, you know, there's the, the stranger comes to town to, you know, it was early in the morning when he rode into the town and he had a big iron on his hip. Arliss Cutter is a guy from Florida, a deputy U.S. Marshal from Florida. He's got a military background. His father was, or his grandfather was a Florida Marine Patrol officer who wore a Colt Python. So now in this age of Glocks and all of that, which we have to carry Glocks in the Marshal Service, um, but we can carry a backup. And so Arliss carries a Glock 27 over his kidney in the four o'clock position. And his backup is his grandfather's Colt Python. And he's sort of, he's sort of a throwback to that old kind of law enforcement that he saw as a, his grandfather raised him. And he's sort of a throwback to that sort of where you, when you and I came up is when his, we, we would be his grandfather. So a <laughs> um, little bit, a little bit younger than that. But so he um, saw some really bad stuff in Afghanistan and since that time, he has resolved to never let bullying behavior go unanswered. So it's not that he's heavy handed, but he's quick handed and he he will not. It's, if it's to him, he's fine. But if he sees an underdog being mistreated. It's explosive and, he, and whether it costs him his job or whatever. So he's constantly his friends are like, you know, just don't, calm down, calm down. So that puts him in a, he, he, and he's been in love with his sister-in-law his entire life. His father or his uh, brother passes away. He moves to Alaska to help her. And so there's this conflict with this woman that his brother stole away from him while he's doing his Alaska stuff. He's kind of a fish out of the water, out of water, but, and he's got a, a wonderful Polynesian partner. My wife and I go to the, Cook Islands in the South Pacific for a couple of months every year to write. And the people there are just so incredible that I took some of them and made them into this Lola Teariki character. And so it's Arliss and Lola and they, it's some of the most fun I've ever had writing because they're obviously not autobiographical. He's way cooler than me. <laughs> but I draw on all the cool people I've met in Alaska and it's, they're, uh, they're really fun books to write. That's great. And you're back in Alaska where oh, yeah. we circled back. That was a great yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, circle back. Well, hey, thanks for being on the show. Uh, Mark Cameron, author, uh, Tom Clancy writer, got his own novels uh, with his own characters. Uh, there's a little bit of an Alaska slant. I think we get to Texas on occasion. And uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, thank you for having me, Jim. I appreciate it. Good work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, and to our listeners, thanks again for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this chat with Mark Cameron, who made his way through the illustrious law enforcement career and continues to spin his tales in his books. 
If you're enjoying the show, please rate us on the Apple podcast. It really helps us out. Give us five stars. Why don't you? And you can get in touch with me and the Policing Matters team at policingmatters at policeone.com. That's police one, O-N-E. Drop us a note, share your ideas, suggestions, feedback, or just say hello. Uh, Give us some ideas. What are you thinking about? Who would you like to hear? And your message may end up in our mailbag section uh, when we get to the next bag. So I hope everyone's staying safe. Take good care. Thanks for listening. I'm Jim Dudley. 